The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we are this morning. And let's see if I can give you a mercifully short sermon about a really big problem. How about that? And we're going to start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1 says, <clears throat> I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would just be here amongst your people as I know that you are, that your spirit would move in this room, Lord, that you would just minister to your people. God, that you would Give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us understanding, and more than anything, Lord, give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done for us and how amazing you are. I pray, God, that this morning, even in the very words that a mouthpiece like me are putting forth, would be empowered by your spirit to build your congregation, to equip your people. And Lord, I pray that everything that is done would be exalting to you, God-honoring, lifting you up as our King of kings and Lord of lords. So we pray, God, as always, but not in vain repetition, that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, there's a lot of things when you're teaching through the scriptures that are very practical in nature. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of things we could look at in the scriptures that, that just have direct application and benefit to us, maybe in a moment, maybe in this moment, in, in such a way just, is just helpful. So for example, when you're in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and we get into these, these teachings and these categories about family and husbands and wives, there's a very practical application to that. We could come here, gather together, read what the text says, talk about it, and, and everyone could, who would have ears to hear, go home and leap. Do you guys hear that? I just became a man. <clears throat> hey, ears to hear. <laughs> Sorry about that. But um, would be very practical. Like, you could. Uh, let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> sorry. See, if you guys haven't, those of you that are new, you're going to figure this out. My filter, it kind of comes and goes. It's like the internet in a coffee shop. You never know if it's on or not, and you just, sorry. Anyway, so the idea is there could be very practical things that I could give you guys that would be tools that you could leave this place and go with. So, so whether it's a teaching about marriage, you could leave this place and say, okay, I left church today with some practical tools, some genuine understanding about some things that I could do to be able to serve me in an area in my life. It could be something about parenting, maybe about forgiveness, maybe about how to come to a brother or sister that you have a disagreement with and how to work through difficulties. Whatever the case may be, there's lots of things in the scriptures. The scriptures are very applicable, very true, very real for us, and we all here at Heritage believe that, amen? 
Okay, but now there's other things that, that maybe we wouldn't intentionally classify it as so, but in our minds, maybe we would think of them as being a little more philosophical and a little less practical. Things that we would say, okay, I understand the reality of this, and maybe it's good for me to know that, but when I leave church today, my knowledge of that isn't going to be practical for me. It's not going to give me any sort of legitimate or real or tangible tools that when I walk out the door today, I'm going to reach for. Maybe it's more of a foundational understanding or, or, or some theological underpinning that defines what we believe. But, but that specific thing, it's not so much a tangible, like, I'm going to leave here and start doing that. There's lots of things about that. One of them that maybe at least we would classify as more philosophical, and maybe if we were being really honest and transparent with one another, we might say not only is it not practical, but we just have a hard time understanding it or maybe even believing it. And a subject like spiritual warfare, like the reality of what goes on around us in a world that for us anyway is unseen. And we can read about it, we can learn about it, We can see what Jesus says about it. We can see all these different things. But when it comes down to it, if we do a teaching on spiritual warfare, probably for most of our existence, those of us that have sat through and we've heard teachings about these kinds of things, we would probably say, yeah, that's that's good to know. It's important. I believe it's true. But now I'm going to go about my day, and that's probably not going to play out in any real or tangible way. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about that or maybe understanding how real it is. And for many people, maybe in this very room, we might even say we just don't even believe in it. Kind of that, I don't see it, doesn't affect me on a daily basis, so I don't believe in it. But I would argue that there's not a person on the planet that doesn't believe in an unseen, untangible, untouchable, but yet real world real dimension, if you will, that not only is real and exists, but that it's dangerous, but that it's after us. I I, I think it's absolutely very true. It's good to see you. Come here a second. No, come on. Just, I just want to, it's just, I haven't seen you in a while. I just want to shake your hand. You doing well? well. (laughs) Can I shake your hand? See you later. (laughs) What's up with that, right? That was rude. Christian love. There are industries built on the understanding. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> there, are, there are industries built on the reality and the understanding that there is an actual, invisible, tangible world that not only exists, though we can't see it, but that it's dangerous and that it affects even our very lives. I mean, the company that makes Germex alone Two years ago, the last, the last profits that I could find recorded on the internet made over $560 million worth of profit on selling this. And they're not the industry leader. That's Purell. So we all believe that there's an invisible world, that there are things out there we don't see. It may not seem tangible. We may not be able to put our hands on it in a real and accurate way, but we believe it's real and we believe that it's dangerous to us. Agreed? Amen if you agree. Well, now we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. What does hand sanitizer have to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 10? 
Well, to give you the abbreviated background, and I always do this because we never know when someone's jumping in with us, and this kind of repetition is the key to learning. It's important for us to understand the reality here is that Paul is the spiritual father to a church, to a group of people. Just out of curiosity, how many of you could do what I'm about to say right now? You could give me the entire background on why Paul wrote this letter. I'm going to be proud if you raise your hand. Raise your hand. Bunch of chickens, all of you. <laughs> or you're not listening. Anyway. So the, then listen now, we'll ask this next week and you can all raise your hand. In this book, we have a letter written by a man who is a spiritual father to a church in Corinth. He planted this church. He, if you will, birthed, formed this church. He calls himself his spiritual father in more than one places, or I mean, sorry, their spiritual father in more than one places. This is his church. And over the years, this church has gotten off the rails more than once. They've gotten off track, they've been duped, they've fallen into sin, they've gotten into all sorts of issues. And Paul, as a good dad, is stern, he deals with their sin, he's going to call them out on the stuff that they're dealing with, but at the same time, he's gentle and he's loving, and his desire is not to like show how he's right and they're wrong, his desire is to constantly call his children back to walking in truth and understanding the reality of what's going on, in addition to the, just the plain old fact, he just loves them. And he doesn't like being distanced from them. He doesn't like animosity and difficulty between them. He genuinely loves them. And so 2 Corinthians in particular is a letter filled with emotion of a father hurting for a child that's wandered away. And in particular at this time, they've wandered away because of false teaching. There's false teachers that have come in, they've thrown Paul under the bus, and they've just said, this guy is not an accurate apostle. This guy, he, he's a fraud. You don't need to be listening to him. His theology is off the charts. He's just completely whacked out in every way. Stop listening to him. And they are like super polished. They've got it all together. Very eloquent in speak. I mean, literally in terms of just standing up and making a presentation, they're nails. I mean, they're awesome. And so these people are hearing this and they're like, man, these guys have it together and they're logical and they're, they're thinking, they're even speaking in the language of the day, a very philosophical climate, Athens right down the road. And, and these people are buying in and they're listening to them. And so they've rejected Paul, they've rejected Paul's teaching, they're following these false teachers and Paul's writing to deal with this. And there's a lot of different reasons that they've thrown Paul under the bus, I mean, they've said, Paul isn't an accurate apostle because he's got this theology about suffering, and it just doesn't even make any sense. Why would God, if, the, if you're God's child, why would he want you to go through suffering that makes no sense whatsoever? In fact, if Paul was a real apostle of God, don't you think God would take better care of him? I mean, shipwrecks and snake bites and prison and more prison and more prison. I mean, don't you think God would look out for his boy a little better than that? And they're like, wow, that kind of makes sense. And they're listening. And they're thinking those things through. And then he has other things. He's like, and you know, Paul's really only after your money. He's always doing these collections. Oh, he's not asking you for money directly, but he'll say, oh, it's for Macedonia. Right. What do you think he's really doing? How do you think he exists? He doesn't even have a job right now. Of course he's living off the money. They throw him under the bus for his appearance. They're like, dude's ugly. That's got to mean something. He's ugly, he's overweight, he's, I mean, there's all kinds of descriptions and things that we interpret uh, uh, issues that people threw at Paul. He's bald, eyesight's bad, eyes are weak, all kinds of things, and that you'll see in other places later that they literally were throwing Paul under the bus because of his physical appearance. All these sorts of reasons. 
And in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10, in the first three verses here of chapter 10, we see a new reason that we haven't yet looked at here as a congregation as we've been going through here. It's another reason why they're throwing him under the bus. And they say, I'm going to read it again. It says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when you are away. And I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Here we've been introduced to a new complaint against Paul. And the complaint really is he's two-faced. He's unstable. Think about how he is with you guys, Corinthians. Oh, when he's away, he writes you letters and says, you need to do this, you need to knock this off and stop doing that, and you need to get it together, and he's yelling and he's fiery and all these sorts of things. But does he really do that when he comes? No, he's a coward. When he comes in person, he's weak and he's timid, and last time he was here, when we called him out for the stuff that we've been telling you all along, he ran. He ran like a coward, timid and weak. That's not a godly man. He's, he's working out of the flesh. The letters he's writing to you, those are out of the flesh. He's just mad and hurt. But when he's here in person, he doesn't have the strength to stand up to you. He's duplicitous. He's fake. He's fleshly. He's not a godly man. He's not someone that you should follow. And so now Paul's going to address this. And he addresses it as he actually does in a lot of different places by saying, yep, that's exactly the way I am. I am absolutely that way. He says in verse one, I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Now here's the deal. Listen to what Paul's saying. Their accusation to Paul is, this is not a godly spiritual man, this is a fleshly man. He's not a guy walking after Jesus, he's a guy walking after his own flesh and his own stuff, and don't follow him. And Paul says, no, actually, the way that I'm operating with you is absolutely following you in a Christ-like manner. And you say, well, wait, wait a minute. But he is sort of duplicitous. I mean, he is kind of timid when he's with them in person, and he's yelling with them when he's not. And what's going on there? Well, think, if you will. Think about the very life of Christ. I mean, God created a people. He birthed a people with a mission and a calling that he loved desperately. But somewhere along the line, Lies came in, false teachers came in, if you will. Things came in seeking to derail them from what God had for them. And so what did people do? They chose themselves, they chose comfort, they chose their own desires, their own wants, their own needs, all of these sorts of things. We said, instead of letting God be God, we will be God. Instead of following what God has for us, we will do what we want and we will call our own shots. And the Old Testament is just really the, the play out of all of that, what that actually looks like and how those things played out over time. But Jesus came humbly, did he not? This is what Christmas is all about, that the God of all creation who spoke all things into existence came in the form of a helpless, gentle, what's more meek and gentle than a brand new newborn baby? And so Jesus came in humility and he came with love. He came to minister to people who were lost, like the woman at the well. He came to tell stories about compassion and love and his desire to gather together the people of God. He wept when people rejected him as he came into the city of Jerusalem before the crucifixion. He goes back outside the city when most of the people are rejecting him and he weeps and he says, if you only knew that I was here today and why I'm there. 
He came in gentleness and meekness and love. But it's not always going to be that way. The book of Revelation, for example, says this. You don't need to turn there. Revelation 20 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. That's the description of Jesus the second time he comes. You see, even Peter teaches that there's people that would say, you guys have been saying that Jesus is coming and that judgment's coming and all these things are coming, but nothing ever changes and day after day after day goes by and he's never here. He's not following his promises. It's not gonna happen, but Peter warns us, doesn't he? And he says, oh, he's not slack, like you guys call him slack. But what does he say? He's patient. He's loving. He's gentle, desiring that none would perish, desiring that all of us would come to an understanding of the faith. His, his if you will, holding back of the judgment that is coming is based completely out of his gentle love for his people. But there's a time when that ends. That story in Revelation, as it goes on to play out, I'll just read it to you. The rest of it says, he comes in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice that called all the birds to fly directly overhead and said, Come and gather for the great supper of God that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done many signs and deceived. And there were two thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And listen, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds of the land were gorged with their flesh. That's not the Christmas story we'll read this month, is it not? That's not gentle and meek. There's a time coming. Oh, Jesus is so incredibly patient and, and, and long-suffering and loving. But there is a time when that ends. And when Jesus will come in wrath and in judgment to judge, rule over, destroy those who have rejected him, but more importantly even, those who have oppressed and deceived his people. The main object of wrath in that story, if you read it that way, just straight up, is who? It's Satan. And it's his henchmen who have, and it even says, who have deceived. And judgment's coming for them. And this is exactly what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, okay, let me explain something to you. You're right. I've been really patient and really gentle. 
When I was away, I've written you letters because there were things that we need to deal with, and so I wrote letters and I've sent them, yes. But when I've come to you face by face, I've been, I've been meek. Maybe I have been timid. His love for them and his desire to see them saved supersedes all these things that he's done, and he comes to them as a good father, comes to his child in love saying, come back to me. But now as we start chapter 10, Paul's starting, if you will, a new paragraph in his letter to the Corinthian people. Now he knows as he's writing, because he's already gotten report from Titus, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, that most of the people in Corinth, having received the letter from Paul, having Titus come and defended Paul, they've kind of figured things out and they're on Paul's side. They're back restored, they're for him. But not everyone, because Paul also knows that the teachers who have led everyone astray are there and they're listening. And so he starts this chapter out by even reasserting in a formal way saying, and listen, I, Paul, like he's reasserting his importance, his authority as apostle of Christ. He's saying, listen, I'm timid and I love you, but there's another visit coming. There's another visit coming. And my desire is to be able to come to you in meekness and timidly, in love and in gentleness. And he even says it, doesn't he? He says, I don't want to have to come with such confidence or boldness. In verse 2, as I, count, as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking towards the flesh. In other words, I got plans for those boys, and I'm hoping they don't include you too. That's what Paul's saying. There is a point where Paul's saying, I am gentle, and yes, I'm loving, and yes, I'm being patient for you, but there is a time when that line gets drawn, and I'm coming, and it's not going to be so pleasant when I get there for those that are walking in this way. Those aren't really encouraging words necessarily, but here's what I would actually say. I think this is incredibly appropriate for us in the church. I mean, Paul even goes on. He's given them this warning, and then in verses three through six, let's read them together, he actually gives, if you will, a sneak preview of what his intentions really are. And think about just the overall imagery that he's using as he speaks. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, to take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He, he uses a very real and very intentional picture of warfare. And this isn't the only time that Paul writes in this vein. He speaks in Timothy about being a good soldier. He talks in Ephesians about the army, or excuse me, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the armor of God, and about being able to withstand the, the temptations of the enemy and making war with these lies. This is a common approach for Paul. And he says here in this particular text, I'm coming again to make war. I'm coming with spiritual uh, warfare. I'm coming with, with weapons that aren't of the flesh. I'm coming to tear down strongholds. It means fortresses. I'm coming to rip strongholds down. I'm coming to take captives, he says. I'm coming to punish disobedience. I'm coming to take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm coming to make war with what's been going on. And I would say this is Paul being very Christ-like. Because think about it this way. There's a time when for patience and gentleness and meekness, but there's also a time when we can still represent the absolute biblical, the character of God in actually making war. 
So think with me. Exodus 34 is probably, we've gone through it many times here at Heritage. It's probably the, the greatest, at least in my opinion, example of being able to see the character, if you will, of God. Because it's from God's own mouth. I mean, he, he speaks this as he declares his glory to Moses. And he gives sort of this like autobiography, if you will, about his character. And the first part of it, we love. The first part of it is the stuff we put on quilts and you cross stitch if that's still a thing and you do this kind of stuff. Like the first part we love, okay? The first part says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Can I get an amen if you love that? Amen. Amen. That's good stuff, right? Because we need that. Because we are sinful and we have rebelled against God and we have blown it over and over and over. So we need a God who is continually steadfast in his, in his grace towards us. So we love that because we need it. But, but he's not done. And, and he finishes by saying, But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And see, here's the way this works out. Think about this. The Bible tells us that mercy and truth uphold the throne of God. Have you heard that before? Mercy and truth uphold the throne. And this is what we've said here a lot of times too. God's throne, probably not lopsided, right? I doubt of all the thrones that have ever existed that the throne of God is one that you need to fold up a napkin and stick underneath one of the legs to balance that thing out, right? God's throne is not lopsided. He is all merciful, patient, loving, gracious, but he is all truthful and righteous and just and will deal with sin. And we know this. We, as the people of God, have a calling and a mission in the world today to manifest the attributes, the character of God to the world around us. So God desires us to grow in graciousness and to grow in mercy and to grow in love because we, as we do those things in the world around us and as we do them with one another, we are manifesting the very character and nature of God. But we also manifest the character and nature nature of God when we punish unjustness. Because God is just. So, so when we throw a murderer in jail for life, when we punish an abuser, when we stand up for someone who is weak, when we do those things, we are being, know this, no less godly as long as our intent is right because God is one who stands up for the oppressed, is a father to the fatherless, who is just and calls us to stand up against those things. And so there's a place where the body of Christ needs to act with gentleness and humility and meekness and be loving and our arms are always open and we want to just wrap our arms around people and love them into the kingdom if we could. But there's another place where the sleeves come up and the fists come out and we deal with wickedness and sin. And both are godly if our hearts are right, if our motives are right before. Are you guys with me on this so far? Because I've got to keep going and work on this before we get to the next part if you're not with me. So we're with me? Okay, both are attributes of God. Now, it's important that we understand this, and it's important that we understand what's going on here. Like, Paul helps us by using this analogy of warfare because this is the reality of it, and please know this. We are at war. That's real. Like, we are absolutely, literally at war with a real enemy. 
And we need to understand this better than we do. Let me give you an example of something that Jesus said actually himself that we can learn from that I think applies to even what we're looking at. Could you guys put John chapter 8 up? In John chapter 8, don't read it yet, watch me. In John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with people inside what we would have referred to at the time as the church. It's kind of the religious institution of the day with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's arguing with them and he's saying, look, the reason you guys are rejecting me and you don't understand who I am, look, if you were of your father, you would know who I am because the father sent me. And they're indignant. What do you mean if we're of our father? We are of our father. We're of the father Abraham. He's our father. And in that, they reach back to this sort of Jewish nationalism that still exists to this day. The Jewish people to this day will say that they're the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they reach back to, if you will, Father Abraham. And they say, we are of our father, Father Abraham. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Pause. This is massive. Because he's talking to the very people that think they, above anyone else on the face of the earth, are God's favorites. They've been following the law, keeping the rules, doing all the Sabbaths, doing all the sacrifices, doing everything that God would ask them to do. And they're like, we are nailing it. Lights out every day. We are awesome. And and Jesus says, you think you're of your father Abraham? No, no, no. Here's why. You can't bear to hear my word because you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Think about that. Your father's the devil, and Satan is using you right now, and you're willfully going along with it. That's just amazing. Bold. Jesus was not a coward, amen? So he says this. He says, because you're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And then listen to what he says. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no, how much? Say it like you mean it. How much? No truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Now, that's just a gigantic statement. But there's three things in here that I want us to really, really know. Like, know. Like, know there is oxygen around us. We know. Like, know that we know it's cloudy. Like, we know we had Thanksgiving. Like, know this. All right? Say no. No, no, not no, K-N. Say that with me, no? All right, so this is what we're gonna do. We need to know these things. Jesus gives us three things. Number one is this, Satan's existence. He's real. He's real. He's as real, if not more real, than the microbes that we try to protect ourselves with, with Germex. He's real. He is a real being with a real agenda And his agenda is to build a following. This is what he's doing from the start. Satan is real and he is actively manipulating, trying to build a following in this world. Everybody say it again. He's real. He's real. And listen, not just out there. This steps on toes sometimes, but listen, he's he's trying to work in here too. 
Like his desire is to manipulate. This is what Paul's dealing with here. That Satan is manipulating truth by using lies. He's spinning lies trying to derail the people of God. And sometimes we can get this mindset that because we're the saved people and we're inside the safety of the walls of this church, that Satan's not here trying to pull anything off. Satan's out there, Jesus is in here. But I assure you, while we may not be able to be taken out of the hand of God, maybe we can't be possessed, a lot of different theories about how Satan works, but he's real and he is constantly spinning lies to the people of God's ears. Right? Amen. All of us have heard him. He's real. The second thing is this, he has one tool. I sort of already gave it away. Satan's one tool is he lies. That's what he does. Satan lies. Not not only does he lie, everything Satan says is a lie. Jesus says there's how much truth in him? None. No truth. So every single thing that ever comes out of the mouth of that dirtbag is a straight up lie lie from the pit of hell, literally. He lies. Now, think about this. Back in Corinthians, leave this up, please. In in 2 Corinthians 10, when Paul makes this comment and he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What he means is, I'm not talking about fighting with some literal swords. The word he actually uses there is saying, it's not that it's material or physical. And the issue that Paul's dealing with in Corinth is what? It's lies. It's people that have come in and said, I, I know Paul taught you this, but I think, you, I think you're off track here. This is what you need to hear. And they're being fed lies. And so just as a good father would want to protect his son, would want to protect his daughter, if someone came into your house with a knife and said, Jeff, I'm going to stab your daughter, a good father would do anything to protect their child from that person that's going to do harm. That would not be time for gentle and meek, Amen. That would be time for Oregon Gun Owners Unite. Let's deal with this, right? Right? Amen? I'll get letters from the rest of you, and that's okay. But that's true. There's a point where you go to action and you deal with this. Well, this is the reality of the situation, man. Satan comes and he lies. At first, that doesn't seem quite as bad, but I'm going to show you why it is in just a minute. But here's, here's what we need to know. Everything he says is a lie. Everything he says is a lie. And it's been that way since the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, Eve, what did God tell you about the tree? Well, God said, oh, that's what God said. Well, that's not really what God meant. And he starts spinning this lie. And it sounds so close to the truth. Paul's later is going to say that, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And you know what that means? That means that a lot of times things that come our way might even look really godly and really spiritual and have just enough truth in them to hide the lie behind them. And so you got these people that come in and they sound Christian and they look Christian and they're spinning stuff Christian, but there are lies coming out of their mouth that are spreading division and hypocrisy and taking advantage of the people, throwing Paul into the book. This isn't just about Paul's pride. Like these are lies that are being fed to these people. And this happens to us all the time. From the very beginning, Genesis 1, Satan's lying. And he lies to you and he lies to me all the time. All the time. You will never be happy if you don't have this. You will never be loved if you don't have that. You ever heard any of those lies in your life before? This thing you're dealing with will never go away. You might as well not have hope, right? Right? 
Anyone heard that? The situation's hopeless. You're not good enough. God's frustrated with you. That sin's unforgivable. That person hates you and you know what? They're right. They should. And those are lies. Those are lies. And we all hear them all the time. And, and even just in that point right there, it is so valuable for us to know that Satan is real and they're all lies. But it's not just about, oh, he tricked me. <laughs> you caught me there with that lie. I'm not going to listen. No, it's, it's more than that. The third thing we have to understand, and Jesus says it in this text. He says what? Your will is to do your father's desires. And what is Satan's will? Look, he was a murderer from the beginning. See, the lies aren't designed to just trip you up and just give you bad theology and then go, cool, I got that guy, I'll move on. Like what we need to understand, this is the reality of when I say warfare, this is why it's such a big deal. The lies that you hear are designed to kill you. I mean, this is what they're gonna do. They've fallen into lies about God, about what God desires, about what God wants, about how to deal with Jesus and others. They've rejected who Jesus is. And what are they going to do just a few weeks later? They're going to kill him. And Satan has used lies to bring those people who should be, they, they should be mediators. They should be the ones bringing people to Jesus and saying, look, this is the Messiah we've been waiting on all along. And instead, now they're on Satan's agenda. They've been fed a bunch of lies and he's gonna use them to accomplish his purpose, which is gonna be to kill Jesus. That's gonna happen. I praise God that it was actually the plan of God that was being accomplished all along and that through that sort of wickedness, God brought life. But it is important for us to know that the lies, the manipulation that is out there, that Satan is constantly speaking into our ear, it's not just troublesome or worrisome, it's deadly. 